0: everybody
1: what's up everybody welcome back to the lights out podcast i'm your host josh and always i'm joined by my brother and producer joel today's episode is number nine and we are covering the extremely dark and tragic event of the columbine high school massacre this event is especially close to joel and i because not only are we both from colorado and that's where we live right now and this horrific event happened in Colorado years ago. But also we have family that attended Columbine High School, not during the time of the actual massacre, but we do have ties to this school. And I've actually played basketball in a summer league here before. So Joel, I know Joel's been to Columbine before as well, right?
2: Yeah, I got to see our cousins perform a play there a while back ago, so that was really cool.
1: Yeah, so both of us have been to the school, We've both seen the inside of it. And it's honestly, I remember being kind of creeped out a little bit going into there. And just with as much history as this place has, and, you know, these poor kids that lost their lives in this event, you know, I just felt like it was important that we talk about these things because I I definitely don't want these events to be forgotten. Or, you know, I think it's important to remember the victims of these dark events and, you know, not so much making it about the actual shooters in this case, but really you know, remembering the lives that were lost because as tragic and horrific as this was, we definitely got to keep these people's stories alive. But before we get into this event, I just wanted to say, first of all, a lot of you have been asking if you watch the show on YouTube, you've been wondering what kind of incense I've been burning over here because I really do enjoy my incense. I feel that it really, helps with not only just the overall energy in the room, it just really helps me think clearer, I feel like, and I definitely enjoy the smell, and I'm actually burning some patchouli right now, uh, which is one of my favorites, so that is what I'm burning in here. In case you're wondering, if uh, you don't know what incense is, Um, I'm not just burning a small campfire over here. As cool as that would be uh, for lights out, it is definitely just some incense. But I also wanted to update you guys that i am starting to work on some lights out merch because i know some of you guys have been asking for that and honestly i kind of want to rock some lights out merch as well so i'm definitely starting the design process with that and if you have any suggestions for cool merch ideas i'd definitely love to hear it so uh either leave me a comment or uh you know hit us up on twitter or instagram at lights outcast and lastly i just wanted to thank all you guys for tuning in to the show every week and Seeing your guys' feedback is probably one of our favorite things to do every week is, you know, go through and look at the reviews and just see how much you guys are really enjoying, you know, Joel and I on the show. So we really appreciate that. And, you know, if you haven't left a comment, you know, rating a review on iTunes uh, or wherever you listen to the show, uh, it's definitely appreciated. And I'll have all those links below for you. But without further ado, we got a lot to cover today. There is a lot to the Columbine High School Massacre. And quite frankly, I'll be honest, we're not gonna even scratch the surface on the amount of information that's out there, uh, especially revolving around Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold. There's so much that we could literally do five episodes probably on this whole event, but we're gonna try to compact it and put it all into one episode for you guys. So this dark event that changed history forever and really changed this whole area of Colorado and really the nation and world Just in general, it affected everybody because nothing like this had ever happened before. So what unfolds on April 20th, 1999 is just truly a complete nightmare and just probably the scariest event any student or really person could ever imagine. I mean, when researching this, it's just you really start to think about how these people must have been feeling as things started to unfold on this day and just how horrifying and truly scary and the amount of fear people must have felt because I know back, I mean, it wasn't that long that Joel and I were in school and we were, you know, in high school. I mean, Oh God, I'm dating myself now, but (laughs) it's been a while since I've been in high school. I feel like, but I still remember what it was like. And, you know, going through this, I'm sure many of you out there are not that far out of high school and can probably, relate to a lot of these people, or maybe even had these fears of uh, a shooting like this happening at your school. So I do want to warn you that this is uh, definitely a graphic episode. Um, a lot of, a lot of just horrific things that happen during this dark day. But this event began on April 20th, 1999 at 1110 AM seniors, Eric Harris, who was 18 years old at the time, And Dylan Klebold, who was 17 years old, arrived at Columbine High School, and they parked their cars in the student spaces of the parking lot. Now, Columbine High School sits in a part of southeastern, unincorporated area of Jefferson County in Colorado. So for those that aren't familiar with Colorado, it's west of the Denver metro area. And the address itself lists the school in Littleton, Colorado, but it's not technically within the city itself. It's kind of in this weird area. But during this time, the school had nearly 2,000 students, so it's definitely one of the larger high schools in the Denver metro area, that's for sure. And at this point in the school year, at the end of April, students are, you know, getting near graduation if you're a senior, and the rest of the students are looking forward to summer vacation. And after Eric had arrived in the parking lot, he spotted a fellow student and a former friend of his named Brooks Brown, who happened to be outside for a smoke break. Now Brooks was surprised that Eric had skipped that morning's classes as eric was generally a diligent student so he went up to him to find out why he had missed the first two hours of school and that's one of the things about eric is that from all accounts and from his parents and everything else it seemed like he was actually a pretty pretty smart kid he came from a you know decent family background and we'll get into more of their you know family lives and stuff later but i mean at first glance you wouldn't necessarily expect him to be this you know horrific monster that he ends up being.
2: Eric was almost a straight A type of student, and a lot of his teachers
1: admired his work ethic and how he would never really skip any classes. Right which is why this was kind of weird to Brooks because even if Brooks knew that you know why is he showing up so late to school that you know he felt inclined that he needed to go up to him and say hey man you know what's going on with you and that's exactly what he did. He Goes up to Eric, and he's like, hey, man, what's going on? Starts giving him a hard time, and he actually ends up cussing Eric out at one point, like literally just giving him tons of shit, being like, what are you doing? What's going on with you? And at this point, Eric is obviously in a totally different mood this day, and he straight up tells Brooks that he needs to get out of school. Leave now if you know what's good for you. And I can't remember the exact words that he said to Brooks, but it was something along the lines of, you need to leave now because things are going to get messy or something like that. Brooks was definitely taken back by, you know, you need to get out of here because clearly he's like, okay, what do you mean by that? I don't understand. But he ends up, you know, taking his advice and leaves the campus. And obviously later on, once Brooks finds out what ends up happening that day, he later says like, I don't understand why Eric didn't just kill me right there. Like I was giving him shit. I was cussing him out. What what stopped Eric from just shooting him right there, and that's a still a mystery to this day. One of the theories though is that Eric didn't want to you know make a scene right there in the parking lot because that could have completely foiled the whole plan if he shot and killed Brooks right there. Plus, Brooks and Eric were friends at one point, and they had kind of fallen off over the previous year. So, so that could have been part of it too. Is that he still felt some type of friendly connection with him. But Brooks is allegedly the only student that was given any sort of warning before the absolute carnage that's carried out by Eric and Dylan begins. And these nightmarish events end up becoming known as the Columbine massacre. And to this day, the Columbine massacre is still one of the deadliest high school shootings in us history. What's crazy though, is that Eric and Dylan had planned for that day to be something far more destructive, far more lethal, than it actually ended up being. And that's saying a lot considering how much destruction and death they caused. Because the original attack plan the two boys devised included diversion, explosives, bombs that would cause mass death and destruction, and the use of guns they had obtained in the preceding months. And they planned their attack out over the prior year, constructing a vast collection of explosives, collecting shotguns, a rifle, a semiotic handgun, and even determining what they would wear. And there was an entry from Eric's journal in 1998, which describes how he and Dylan intended to carry out unprecedented violence first in the school, killing as many people as possible before moving things out onto the streets to attack houses, gas stations, police officers, bridges, and other structures. In his journal, Eric wrote, it'll be like the LA riots, the Oklahoma bombing, world war two, Vietnam, Duke and doom all mixed together. That's fucking crazy to think about that these guys and it's really something to note that these guys were planning this for a very, very long time and they were very vocal about it, not only in journals, but both Eric uh, and Dylan had a website which they posted a lot of this stuff to and had a kill list for all these people that they wanted to kill. So they were definitely very open about what their thoughts and feelings were about, you know, all of these different things. And they were clearly fans of, you know, we covered the Oklahoma City bombing and Timothy McVeigh. They clearly looked up to him and, you know, looked up to these other evil individuals that just carried out unspeakable acts against innocent people. And they actually referred to this day of April 20th, 1999 as MBK is what Eric liked to call it. And this was a reference to the film Natural Born Killers. And at approximately 11.14 a.m., Eric and Dylan carried duffel bags containing two 20-pound propane bombs into the school's cafeteria. The bags were to blend in with the several hundred other backpacks in the cafeteria belonging to students. And they set the bombs with the timer to go off at 11.17, a time that Eric and Dylan determined the largest number of students would be in the cafeteria for their lunch that period. So investigators
2: would later find notes by Eric who he made regarding how many students were coming into the cafeteria during that time. And I think he did that because he wanted to make sure that there was as many people as possible in that room before
1: the bombs went off. Yeah. It's very clear from their journals and writings and different postings on their website that that was indeed their plan was to build these bombs and have them detonate in this cafeteria where I think they said, the count was like 450 people could be in this cafeteria at one time, which if there's 2000 kids in the school, you're talking, you know, almost a, a third of them or yeah, or a fourth of them, I guess, in the cafeteria at one time. And if those go off, that's going to be absolutely devastating. So after they dropped the bags with the bombs in them, Eric and Dylan then headed back outside and waited by their vehicles. Their plan was to wait for the explosives to go off and then actually shoot survivors as they ran out of the building afterward. But luckily the bombs failed to detonate, which is absolutely crazy that this 18 and 17 year old are building bombs. I mean, they're propane bombs, but 20 pound propane bombs, I mean, that's crazy. And that's the other thing with them is that they were absolutely obsessed with bomb making and weapons and uh, really all of that sort of thing, right?
2: Right. They spent a lot of their free time together making homemade bombs, shooting guns, anything that was destructive, pretty much. So they were definitely prepared
1: on making a bomb of mass destruction. Yeah, and later on, experts actually said that if those 20-pound bombs had indeed gone off, then they could have definitely had the potential to kill hundreds of people inside the school, which would have been absolutely devastating. So Eric and Dylan are still hanging out by Their vehicles are wondering why their bombs haven't gone off. A 911 call is logged at 1119 a.m. And it's being reported that an explosion in an open space three miles away from Columbine High School has just occurred. Two backpacks with pipe bombs, aerosol canisters, and small propane tanks partially detonated and started a fire in a nearby field. And obviously these bombs were planted by Eric and Dylan as a diversion tactic in order to distract police and emergency services from the ensuing attack that was about to happen at the school. So when they realized that the bombs in the lunchroom didn't go off, Eric and Dylan decide that they need to go in and see what was going on as well as start the plan B for their attack. So they put on their black trench coats, which was something that they actually wore far before this happened. They were kind of known as the trench coat kids and so they put their trench coats on and then they started arming themselves and these guys were armed to the teeth. They had a tech DC nine handgun, a nine millimeter high point semi-automatic carbon rifle, two sawed off shotguns and more than 50 pipe bombs they had made. And once they had put all the weapons inside their trench coats, cause there's a lot of room under those, they headed towards the school's West entrance. Underneath their trench coats that day, Eric had worn a shirt reading natural selection and Dylan wore one that said wrath. That was one of the things that kind of the, one of their philosophies was natural selection, you know, which just means the the stronger prevails over the weak, pretty much. And, you know, they believe that if somebody is dumb enough or weak enough to, you know, open up an opportunity for somebody to take something or. You know overpower them they believe that natural selection allows them to do that so as dylan and eric are walking up to the school apparently a witness reportedly said that they yelled go go before they pulled their guns from their trench coats and started shooting several students at first thought that eric and dylan were holding paintball guns and you know just thought maybe this is like a senior prank that's what's so crazy about this is for a long time people thought that this was just some type of senior prank that was going on or that these guys were just fucking around and brought paintball guns. Cause that's how unusual this whole thing was. A beautiful young girl named Rachel Scott was eating lunch on the grass with her friend, Richard Costaldo when Eric and Dylan opened fire on the West entrance near where she was seated on the grass. And according to witnesses, she was hit and fell to the ground where moments later, one of the shooters came down the Hill and shot her at point blank range. When she tried to get up, she died from gunshot wounds to the head chest arm and leg and was one of the first victims of eric and dylan's killing spree eric then moved on and turned fire on a group of three boys dan was heading out of the cafeteria that morning with friends lance kirkland and sean graves when the shooters opened fire down the grassy knoll outside the school's west entrance there was no warning for danny and no chance he was felled by shots to the abdomen and left leg Lance tried to catch him, but he was shot as well. Moments later, Dylan shot him again at point-blank range in the chest. He bled to death on the sidewalk outside the school, where he lay for nearly two days before paramedics were allowed to move him. As those three were lying there wounded and dying, Michael Johnson and Mark Taylor were then also shot and injured by Dylan and Eric. After that round of firing, Dylan then went down the steps and proceeded to finish off Daniel Rorbo, and Lance Kirkland again at close range. And in a later interview, Lance actually recalled calling for help after he was initially hit, and Dylan actually responded, sure, I'll help you, before he shot him in the face. Luckily, Lance fortunately survived. Meanwhile, Brooks Brown, who was walking away from the school, was starting to hear the shots and explosions, and obviously he started realizing real quick that something horrific was happening so he ran to a nearby house to call 911. The sounds of the commotion outside, obviously, shots going off. People thought maybe fireworks at first or, like I said, a senior prank, but quickly they realized from the screams of students that something far worse was happening outside, and it caught the attention of teacher Dave Sanders inside the school. Dave went to the cafeteria where he saw students trying to look outside to see what was going on. And obviously he realized real quick that the situation was dangerous. So him and two of the school's custodians started directing students to take cover under tables and then guided them as they fled from the cafeteria upstairs to the second level of the school. While all this is happening, Sean Graves who had just been shot outside had managed to crawl to the cafeteria doorway, but collapsed in the entryway and remained on the ground pretending to be dead. At the same time that this is happening, Dylan's coming into the school and steps over Sean in order to get to the cafeteria. People
2: later speculated that Dylan went back into the cafeteria to see why the bombs did not go off, because that was their original plan the whole time was to detonate
1: those bombs while all those students were in the cafeteria. Right. And I'm sure like they were, you know, kind of freaking out, like, why didn't our plan work why didn't these bombs work so hard on why didn't they go off so i can imagine that you know at all costs he wanted those to go off because that was definitely you know the bigger plan here so when dylan goes back to the cafeteria it appeared to be emptier than it had been before because dave sanders and the custodians had gotten a lot of the students out and many others that were still there were hiding so it kind of appeared like it was empty So we're not exactly sure why Dylan went back in there and why didn't he start opening fire on everybody in there. It doesn't, we're not entirely sure. And that's why people speculate that maybe he went in there to check on the bombs, but we don't totally know why he went back in there because he was only in there for a second. It's almost like he peeked his head in there and then, you know, he walked back outside again and stepped over Sean before returning to where Eric was. Now, Sean graves who had been lying there pretending to be dead ended up surviving He was shot four times, but ended up being partially paralyzed from the waist down. So during this time that Dylan had gone inside to the cafeteria and then walked back out, Eric had shot Anne-Marie Haugholter, who would go on to survive her injuries, but would also be partially paralyzed. And when she spoke about her
2: experience later on, she thought at first that she was shot by a paintball gun. After the second bullet hit her, she realized, quote, I was bleeding to death. It didn't look bad on the outside, but inside it felt wrong. It felt wet.
1: That's that's horrifying. It's crazy to think about how she thought he had a paintball gun because that's so absurd, especially with everything that's happened you know, since this event with all the school shootings and everything, that if you were to see anybody with any type of device that looks like a gun brought to a school, you're going to be... Extremely alarmed by this, and and obviously call nine one one, and most likely it's a real gun. So the fact that they were so you know did not think that this was real at first, and they're like, "There's just no way that this guy's shooting me with a real gun. This student is shooting me with a real gun. It's just so crazy and so surreal for them, I'm sure." Also, throughout this whole time, Eric and Dylan are throwing pipe bombs everywhere. Dylan's throwing pipe bombs in the cafeteria. They're just throwing. Pipe bombs everywhere. They brought a ton of them with them. And apparently a witness that was outside reportedly heard one of them say, Quote, This is what we always wanted to do. This is awesome. To those inside the building which were still unaware of the attack, these sounds were initially thought to have been some part of a senior prank. And around eleven twenty five AM, teacher Patricia Nielsen started hearing the explosions and noises and saw the shooters, but initially she thought they were toy guns. That's just crazy to me. She just thought they were making a video. Both Dylan and Eric had been active in a video class and film projects before. So she started walking towards the west exterior doors intending to tell them to stop. A student by the name Brian Anderson had also been at the west doors after a teacher instructed him to exit upon hearing the commotion. And as Patricia Nielsen and Brian Anderson walked towards the doors, Eric and Dylan began walking towards them and towards the school, firing their weapons at the West doorway. The glass obviously starts shattering and glass shards are flying all about, and it starts hitting Patricia Nielsen and Brian Anderson, which at that point, both of them turn around and start running to the library for shelter. And at this point, the Jefferson County Sheriff's deputy, Neil Gardner, who is the Columbine high school school community resource officer had been called to the back parking lot of the school first by the custodian and then by the reports over the radio stating, female down at the school. And as Deputy Gardner arrived and exited his patrol vehicle, Eric turned his gunfire towards him and shot about 10 times before his gun jammed. Deputy Gardner returned fire and Eric started shooting back before running into the school building. At 11.26, Deputy Gardner reported shots at the school and called for backup over his police radio. And at this point, the scene is just utter chaos as students are running from the building while an unknown number are still inside the school. Law enforcement and emergency responders at this point had very little precise information about what exactly was happening inside and who was perpetrating the attack. They literally had no idea who these two were. They had no names for them, and they didn't even know the full extent of the attack. They didn't know if it was just two gunmen or if there was multiple gunmen. There was a lot of conflicting reports at the beginning. Because obviously 911 is getting bombarded with calls at this point and there's just tons of conflicting info being shared with first responders. But soon after, more Jefferson County deputies and paramedics arrived and helped students escape and started treating the injured. When backup arrived, Deputy Gardner warned them that one of the shooters, Eric, was leaning out the window and firing. And one of the officers that had arrived, Paul Smoker, returned shots before Eric went back inside. So they were kind of shooting at each other a little bit before Eric then all dylan into the school deputy smoker later said there
2: was an unknown inside the school we didn't know who the bad guy was but we soon realized the sophistication of their weapons these were big bombs big guns we didn't have a clue who they were but they were hurting kids I couldn't imagine something like this happening.
1: Yeah. It's just crazy how even the law enforcement was completely taken aback by what was happening, that there was two students seemingly, or maybe more that were armed to the teeth with bombs and big guns that they shouldn't have had. And they were attacking their fellow students. And I mean, just to put into perspective, Columbine high school is in an area that is middle class, typically low crime rate. So things like this just do not happen there and haven't happened there. So This was just completely new to all the officers and first responders that showed up at the scene, and I'm sure it was just honestly mind-blowing to them and completely shocking. So once Eric and Dylan had gone inside the school, they walked down the north hallway of the school and continued shooting. Dylan, at this point, was using a semi-automatic handgun, and many of the students who were not part of the first lunch period and were still in class were not yet aware of the situation as Eric and Dylan re-entered the building. While they moved through the hallway, the gunmen shot Stephanie Munson, who was a student, and they shot her in the ankle while she was running to exit the building. Fortunately, she was able to make it outside. As they made their way towards the library hallway upstairs, Dylan and Eric came across Dave Sanders. He was in the upstairs hall trying to get students safely hidden in the classrooms when he was shot from behind by Eric Harris. Dave was hit by bullets in the torso, the head, and the neck, and he had managed to get himself into a science lab where he bled to death waiting for help, that 911 dispatchers told students who were helping him said was coming, but never arrived. I just want to take a moment too to say that Dave Sanders is a true hero in this whole event. He saved probably, I don't even know, countless lives this day. And getting all the students out of the hallways, like once the shooting started happening, and he knew it was going on pretty, pretty straight off the bat. And He worked tirelessly running around the school, getting everybody herded into classrooms and doors shut and locked. He definitely saved many lives this day and honestly should be remembered as a hero because he was a hero this day. And everybody that I heard talking about Dave just remembers him as just an all-around good guy. Everybody liked him. He was a coach. And yeah, he just definitely put others before himself. And he did anything that he could in order to save the lives of his students. And you know what? I have mad respect for people that do that because not everybody would step up in this type of situation in order to save others and put yourself at risk. So definitely, you know, big thank you to Dave. We'll never forget you, Dave.
2: What's frustrating is it took the first responders and the SWAT team and law enforcement way too long to get inside the school and to secure the premises. And I feel like if they got in there right away and took care of the situation that Dave
1: most likely would have survived. Absolutely. I I think that's one of the biggest points of contention with the Columbine massacre is that police did not enter the school for a very long time, far too long. And if they had entered much earlier, then how many lives could have been saved? There could have been a lot more that could have been saved and we'll, We'll talk about that more later, but you're absolutely right. So at this point in time, Eric and Dylan continued shooting, detonating explosives in the now empty library hallways for over three minutes. And outside, more patrol cars and officers were arriving on the scene. And instead of, like we were just saying, charging into the building and eliminating the threat, they all stayed outside uh, because they didn't know what was going on, I guess communication was really bad too at this point in time you know it's not as good as it is today dispatch was not as good as it is today and just their technology was not as good so it's not an excuse for not you know going in right away but at the same time i think they were just really confused about exactly what was going on how many people were involved who was the threat because the last thing you want to do is for the police to go in and start shooting innocent people because they don't know who the suspect is too and i think that was part of the the thought. There was that they didn't want to, you know, put more innocent lives at risk by just charging into the building without knowing exactly who the individuals were that were, you know, causing the the chaos and destruction. And not only that, I mean, they've got kids running out of the building at a rapid rate too. You've got injured kids running out, been shot. So I think it's just so much chaos that's happening that, and the fact that they've never experienced an event like this, that they just weren't prepared. At all they did not have the the training or really the know-how how to deal with an active shooter situation in a school so yeah i i think that really really made this event way worse that they were not prepared for this at all but at 11:29 a.m eric and dylan entered the library which would prove to be the deadliest scene during this whole day's event at this time there were 56 people in the library four faculty and 52 students Patricia Nielsen, the teacher who we had mentioned earlier, had gone up into the library to seek refuge, and when she had gotten up there, she had instructed the students to hide under the tables, and she did as well, and then called 911. And I'm going to go ahead and play some of this 911 call because it really helps put into perspective what these poor people were dealing with this day, so we'll play some of that now.
0: Jefferson County 911. Yes, I am a teacher at Columbine High School. There is a student here with a gun. He has shot out a window. I believe one of i has at Columbine High, high School. school I don't know what's in my shoulder. If it was just around the you know what. Um, okay, has anybody been injured, Yes. Okay. And the school is in a panic. And I'm in the library. I've got students down on a table, kid. Heads under the table. Um, Texas screaming. Some of the teachers um are, you know, trying to take control We need police here, we Okay. Police. We're getting them there. Who is the student, ma'am? I do not know who the student is. Okay. I saw a student outside. I was in holiday. Oh, dear God. Okay. I was on duty. I saw a gun. I said, what's going on out there? And he says, was was probably some video production. He told me a joke. I said, well, I don't think that's a good idea. And I went walking outside. I said, dance to see what was going on. And he turned the gun straight at us and shot. And my God, the window went out. And the kid standing there with me, I think he got hit. Okay. Something in my shoulder. Okay. We've got help on the way,
1: ma'am. Hearing that 911 call just... Sends shivers down my spine like it's it's one of those things where I you really can feel the fear of these people that are in the library and knowing that Dylan and Eric are just outside and potentially about to enter into the library itself and unleash just pure evil is definitely the most horrifying aspect of, of this event for me, because for me, it's like, what do you do in this situation? I mean, do you hide? Do you run? Do you fight? What do you do in a situation where you know that you could be face-to-face with a shooter and, you know, all you can do is hide under a desk. And obviously a desk isn't going to really do much for you. It's not going to save you from what's about to happen. So I don't know. It's a really tough situation and, and I don't think anybody can really understand what that's like until you're in it. And I know for me, it would just be you have, there's so many things got to think about your family. Yeah. Uh, so many, you know, am I going to get all this alive and just fear itself? Is that going to cripple you to the point where you just are frozen underneath the, the deaths? And it seems like a lot of people were like that, but, uh, what happens next is just truly horrifying and warning. This is where things get uh, definitely graphic. So when Eric and Dylan make their way into the library, witnesses reported hearing them yell, get up. Eric and Dylan also demanded that jocks and anyone with a white hat or baseball cap should stand up, because white caps were commonly worn among jocks of the school. Then Eric started firing shots, which hit the library counter. The splinters from the shots hit student Evan Todd, which only injured him minorly. After that, the shooters walked towards the library's windows. So while they were walking towards the library windows, there was a student by the name Kyle Velasquez, who was a special needs student who had not really known what was going on at the time and was just sitting innocently at one of the computer tables when Dylan walked up behind him and shot him in the back of the head. They then proceeded to start shooting through the windows of the library down at the officers and students below. And after a little while of shooting outside, they turned their attention back inside the library. Dylan then proceeded to go and shoot underneath the table and injure three students. Daniel Stepleton, Mackay Hall, and Patrick Ireland. Patrick Ireland was shot again when trying to administer first aid to a bleeding student, but survived. Steve Kernow was hiding under one of the small computer tables in the library near Casey Rugswager when the shooting began. Eric shot Casey and then shot Steve in the neck with a sawed-off shotgun. Steve died in the library and was the youngest victim of the Columbine Massacre casey survived and would later
2: recall i knew who shot me i remember looking straight down the barrel after getting shot she said i made a moaning noise i guess the gunman told me quit your bitching i thought he was going to shoot me again so i pretended to be dead
1: eric then came around the table where cassie Bernal and another girl were hiding he slapped the top of the table twice with his left hand and said to the two frightened girls peekaboo He then bent down, pointed his sawed-off shotgun under the table, and fired once, shooting Cassie in the right side of the head. She died immediately. I just wanted to point out that I heard Cassie Bernal's story. I believe it was Cassie Bernal. I'm not entirely positive if it was her parents or not, but her parents spoke at my church uh, years ago, and I remember hearing them tell her story because they believed she was a martyr for Christianity because It's rumored that I guess when Eric came over to her, he asked her if she was a Christian. And without hesitation, Cassie said yes. And that's when Eric shot her with his shotgun. Such a tragic, such a tragic story. And I remember hearing it and just thinking, wow. And in that moment, you know, and facing down a barrel that she was just so confident in her faith and stuff. And I thought that was pretty cool that she, you know, was able to find peace in that moment in her last bit of time on earth. It's just absolutely crazy. I'll never forget hearing, hearing her story, but I just wanted to point that out. But after he shot Cassie investigators believe that Eric actually hit himself in the face with the recoil of the gun after the shot, which broke his nose. Because, I mean, it's a sawed-off shotgun, so if you've never shot a shotgun before, those actually have some pretty serious recoil to them. And if you've got a sawed-off shotgun, you're still going to have that recoil. And, you know, if you're holding it the way that Eric was holding it, uh, kind of under the table in front of his face, it could very well have popped backwards and hit him in the face. With his nose bloodied, he then went over to Bree Pasquale and asked if she wanted to die before deciding not to shoot her because he said, we're going to blow up the school anyway. Next, Dylan and Eric moved to a table where Isaiah Shoals, Matthew Ketcher, and Craig Scott hid. Isaiah was a well-known athlete and someone whom the shooters had problems with before. And when Dylan saw him hiding beneath the table, he called Eric over. They flanked the table on either side and then Dylan made a racist comment toward Isaiah and tried to pull him out from under the table. When that failed, Eric opened fire, killing Isaiah. Dylan then shot and killed Matt, and Craig was amazingly left uninjured because he played dead, covered in the blood of his dying friends. And Craig Scott is actually the brother of the first person they killed, Rachel Scott. And Craig Scott ended up surviving, and he's a—he's uh, definitely, definitely messed up from this. I can't even imagine not only losing your sister. But also being there with right next to your friends as they're shot right next to you and lying in their blood Uh, that's just like so surreal to me i can't even imagine what that would be like how much trauma you know he carries with him today
2: talking about the day later on scott said the shooters were treating it like a game he recounted i was lying in their blood and i thought i was going to die the only thing I could do at the moment was to pray. I asked God to take away all of the fear I was having because I felt like I couldn't
1: breathe. I felt like my heart was going to stop beating. I think that's what most of us would be doing. I mean, what do you even do in that moment? I'm sure he thought he was going to be next. I'm sure he is still surprised to this day that he that he survived this. I'm sure he's got survivor's guilt. Like I can't even imagine carrying that with you for the rest of your life. It's just so horrific. But after attacking that table, Eric then threw an explosive towards where Makai Hall sat, but Makai was able to grab it and throw it away before it exploded. Eric then jumped on the bookcases and started shaking them before shooting at the falling books. Clearly just they're starting to lose their shit. And I mean, the fact that they're treating this like a game, like I came, what the fuck is wrong with you? it's hard to understand like what's going through these people, you know, Eric and Dylan's minds in these moments. Like how are they not having any sort of remorse or empathy towards these poor innocent kids that they're just slaughtering in this library? It just is so hard to wrap your head around. And I don't know if there's any way to really understand it at all. Dylan then shot a display case before he got to a table where Lauren Townsend Val Schnurr and Lisa Krutz were hiding under he opened fire injuring Lisa and Val and then he fired again as fast as his weapon would shoot hitting Lauren several times a few minutes later Eric then came back around the table and shot beneath it again hitting Lauren again but she didn't feel it this time because she was already dead she died on the floor of the library from multiple bullet and shotgun wounds to the head chest and lower body Eric then walked to a different table. And after looking at the two girls hiding underneath, simply said, pathetic, before moving on. Nicole Nolan and John Tomlin were underneath the next table Eric went to. Without bending to see who was under the table, Eric opened fire on John and Nicole, injuring them both with a blast from his shotgun. Then Dylan Klebold came around the table and shot John at point-blank range in the head, killing him almost instantly. These guys were just fucking I mean shotguns are devastating weapons especially at close range. I mean if you don't if you've never seen what a bullet looks like for a shotgun it's you know not only you know the actual shell itself has a bunch of essentially little BBs little metal BBs in it along with the the bolt itself. So the amount of destruction these things are meant to spread the damage around. Because they're not meant to be shot at human beings. They're meant for hunting birds and things like that. So I can't even imagine. It's just it's hard to wrap your head around being shot point blank in the head or seeing that. It's just so fucking horrifying. Eric then came up behind Kelly Fleming and killed her before shooting Gianna Park, who ended up surviving. After reloading, Eric and Dylan moved on to yet another table. And hiding beneath this table was John Savage. John was very lucky that he actually knew Dylan and they were somewhat of friends at one point. So when Dylan asked who it was and he said it was John Savage, after identifying himself, John asked Dylan what he was doing. Dylan responded, oh, just killing people. John then asked if Dylan was going to kill him. And Dylan said no warning him to leave the library, which he did. Which he's very lucky that Dylan knew who he was and they had some sort of relationship at one point because I think otherwise he definitely would have been killed that day.
2: And when Dylan told John that he he should get up and leave the library, at first John thought he was just playing around and that the moment he stood up he was just going to get fired upon. So he continued to just sit there, and look at Dylan, like, are you serious? And Dylan kept telling him, get up, get out, get out. And finally John just got up and did as he said, and luckily Dylan
1: didn't open fire on him. Then from there, Eric shot 15-year-old Daniel Mauser in the face who had been hiding under one of the tables. This poor kid. Not only that, he humiliated him before killing him calling him four eyes because Daniel wore glasses. And Daniel was just a sweet kid, quiet, completely innocent. I mean, they're all innocent, but just absolutely no reason. You know, if anything, Daniel was one of them, an outcast. And, you know, so it just doesn't make any sense at all. And poor Daniel died instantly. Then both of the gunmen fired under a table where they wounded Jennifer Doyle, Austin Eubanks, and killed Corey Depooter. Corey was hiding under the table near the windows with his best friend Steven and surviving victim Jennifer when Eric and Dylan first entered the library. While his friend Austin watched, Dylan aimed his semi-automatic at Corey and pulled the trigger, killing him almost instantly. Corey was the last person murdered by Eric and Dylan, and he passed away at 11:35 am. After this, Eric threw another explosive in the library, And the shooters actually ended up taunting Evan Todd, who had been hit by the splinters at the very beginning when Eric first fired into the library and basically just fucking with him, being like, we're going to kill you, you know, just acting like they're going to shoot him, but they ended up not shooting him. And then Dylan and Eric talked to each other about leaving the library. But before they did, Dylan shot back into the room, hitting a television. He then threw a chair onto the counter under which Patricia Nielsen was hiding and then the two left the library together at 11.36. At that point, they had killed 10 people, injured 12 others there in just over seven minutes. Once those still in the library had determined that the shooters had left the library, they began exiting through the emergency exit towards the patrol vehicles. But some remained in the library and hid. Lisa stayed because her injuries made it so she was unable to move, and Patrick remained in the library unconscious due to his wounds. And still, at this point in time, police had still not entered the building. So from the library, Eric and Dylan then went to the science hallway. But they didn't attempt to go into any of the classrooms with people inside. Instead, they just looked through the windows. And when they did shoot, it was into empty rooms. It's very weird. It's like, I'm surprised that they didn't try to, like, continue their rampage by going into the classrooms. I mean, thank God they didn't break into the classrooms with other students. It's almost like I wonder if their whole experience in the library had a huge effect on them. I can't imagine that as a human being that at some point in doing these horrible, horrible things that you don't start, you know, I don't care how fucked up your mind is or, you know, what disorders you have or what drugs you're on. Like, I think there's got to be some point in which you start, you know, you're taking the lives of these people and you're seeing the destruction that you're doing over and over again, that it's, you're telling me it doesn't have an effect on you. I don't know. I feel like my, just my personal opinion is is I think maybe they were starting to really like be affected by what they were doing at this point. And that's why they didn't continue pushing on as hard as they could have in order to kill more people. And it's unclear at that time
2: how much ammo that they had remaining. I mean, they could have only had a few more clips or a few more rounds at that time. So it makes Mm -hmm. me think
1: that could have been a possibility as well. Yeah, that's a really great point, actually. Maybe they were running out of ammo, and part of the plan was to shoot it out with the police or something, so they were saving it for like a final stand or something like that. That's definitely a possibility, though. Eric and Dylan then moved back towards the cafeteria together at 1144 AM and Eric shot at one of the duffel bags with the propane bombs in order to try to set it off and footage from the cafeteria security camera show that when it did not detonate Dylan then went over and messed with it maybe to fix whatever was keeping it from going off Dylan is then shown stepping back throwing another explosive at it which then causes a partial detonation and then a fire to ensue. Then you can see from the video that the fire alarm and sprinklers start going off from the smoke. And then next, Eric and Dylan begin to move randomly, going towards the main office and shooting at it before returning to the cafeteria and then going back upstairs to the library at 12 p.m. They then go back over to the broken windows and start firing at law enforcement and individuals outside through the library windows from 12.02 to 12.05. And I think at this point, they're starting to realize that It's going to be only a matter of time before police are going to be inside and they're going to be, you know, captured at this point or shot and killed by police. And I think they really started thinking about, you know, how is this going to end? How do we want it to end? I think ultimately Dylan and Eric wanted to maintain control over the situation and you know, really make the ending that they wanted to happen. So it was at this point that at 12.08 p.m. Eric and Dylan turned their weapons on themselves, committing suicide by self-inflicted gunshot wounds to the head. And they died literally side by side. There's a photo out there. I'm not going to show it, but if you want to see it, there's a photo out there that shows where they died and how they died. And you can see them with their guns laying dead next to each other in the library. And I don't know. When you look at the photos, there's some speculation about how, I believe it was Dylan, how he killed himself because he had a shotgun and it would have been difficult to shoot himself with that and just how far away the shotgun was from him where he died. Uh, So I don't know. Some speculate that maybe Eric shot Dylan and then shot himself or something like that, but but it seems like either way. I mean, who fucking cares? They're both dead at this point. What's crazy, though, is that they inflicted all this devastation and death In just under an hour. With all the explosives, the bombs, and sawed off shotguns and guns they had brought into the school. And it wasn't until 12.06 that the first SWAT team entered the school. Literally just a few minutes before Eric and Dylan's deaths. That's fucking crazy to me. So over the next few hours, the SWAT team would receive backup with more squads entering the school. And because they were doing a sweep of every room of the building in order to secure it, And the fact that they were still receiving ongoing reports of the situation without an exact knowledge of the threat level, including the possibility of an unknown number of explosives. It took hours for them to go through the building because it's important to remember that they actually they built multiple bombs and they had all these explosives and they actually had booby trapped their cars. So police did not know, you know, what they were walking into at all. They had no idea if these two had placed explosives all throughout the school and that they could walk into a room and it could explode so the threat level was definitely very high at this point but still that's no excuse this is what SWAT teams literally train for this is what they're literally there for and at this point first responders are not aware that Eric and Dylan had already committed suicide so they also thought that the shooters could still be holed up in there perhaps barricaded so They had to systematically search every single room because they could be hiding anywhere. At 1225 p.m., instruction was given for parents to go to Leewood Elementary to receive information and be reunited with their children. Because they actually bust a bunch of these students off of the campus to this nearby elementary school where parents could then go and find their kids. Because you can imagine how scared all these parents were. Wondering where their child was if they hadn't heard from their child. I mean this was kind of pre You know really cell phone days. There's pagers and things like that, but not all kids had that so uh, Imagine how many parents were just scared sick wondering if their child was okay And you know if they would be at the elementary school when they went to go get them But students were transported over by bus and were identified and quickly interviewed about the situation before they were reunited with their families At 1228 a hotline was created for parents of Columbine students and for students who had escaped the building to report their condition and location. And throughout this time, a student and Eagle Scout named Aaron Hansy, who was in the room where Dave Sanders, the teacher who he talked about was sheltered and had been using his first aid knowledge in order to tend to Dave's injuries with the help of fellow student, Kevin Starkey. And while SWAT teams were performing a meticulous search of the school, and assisting and evacuating students as they went along Aaron continued to care for Dave using pictures from his wallet to distract him with positive conversation hoping to keep him conscious and talking hero too. I mean ri- talk about rising to the occasion I mean not only that you know instead of getting himself safely out of the building he stayed by Dave's side in order to try and and help him and save his life potentially that's a that's a hero right there at 2 15 p.m. Students who were in the science classroom with Dave held a sign saying, one bleeding to death, outside the window in an attempt to get attention for emergency medical assistance. SWAT members did not find the classroom with Dave Sanders inside until 2.30 and did not enter until 2.40 when they evacuated students. They then waited for about 20 more minutes for a paramedic to arrive, attempting to control Dave Sanders' bleeding in the meantime. But by the time a paramedic did arrive, dave sanders had died from his wounds so that goes back to your point that i mean we're talking almost two two and a half hours almost three hours right that he has critical gunshot wounds that need, you know those need to be tended to immediately and if he had gotten help sooner and gotten pulled out of there and in an ambulance to the hospital even an hour sooner he probably would have survived he probably would have pulled through but the fact that the emergency response took so long literally cost him his life. Aaron Hansey, the Eagle Scout that had helped Dave escape from the building after he was evacuated by the SWAT team. And he recalled being convinced that Dave Sanders could be rescued, operated on and recover the whole time he was in the classroom with him. He said that when he learned about Dave Sanders death the next day, it broke his heart because he had done his best to take care of him after he was shot. Yeah. God. That must have been really hard. He really felt like Dave was going to pull through. He really felt like, you know, I'm going to save this guy's life. He's going to be okay. Uh, That must have just been, yeah, heartbreaking to hear that he died. After all, after his heroic attempt, help wasn't there in time. But since the massacre, Dave Sanders has been recognized as a hero for continuing to help evacuate students to safety for as long as possible, even when it put his own life at risk. When Connie
2: Sanders, Dave's daughter, who asked about her father's death years later, she said that her and her family knew he had sacrificed his safety in order to save as many students as possible. She said that, quote, we realized that if we hadn't been where he was, there would be more than 12 names to read today. There'd be more than 12 names of dead children, And I can't imagine, and I don't think he could have imagined ever losing a child. And we are so
1: grateful that he made that choice. 100% a hero, man. He 100% saved countless students' lives that day, for sure. I mean, the fact that he sprung into action when he started hearing gunshots going off, and he did not stop until he felt like all the students that he could help were helped and safe and secure in classrooms. I mean, he really rose to the occasion and unfortunately he paid with his life, but I mean, he saved so many people that day. So I'm glad that he has been honored as a hero because he absolutely deserves it. But by this time in the afternoon, media coverage of the event had been well established, providing footage and reports from the ongoing scene. What's crazy is that a lot of the parents found out and students even found out about what had happened that day from the media and the news. They had no idea until they started seeing their school and the people that they knew started being talked about on the news. And at 2:33 p.m., President Clinton made an emergency statement about the situation at Columbine. However, since it was still considered an active site, he refrained from going into any detail. We'll play that clip for you too cuz I think kind of helps put all this into perspective.
0: There has been a terrible shooting at a high school in Littleton, Colorado. Uh, Because the situation, uh, as I left to come out here, apparently is ongoing, I think it would be inappropriate for me to say anything other than I hope the American people will be praying for the students, the parents, and the teachers. And uh, we'll wait for events to unfold and then uh, there'll be more to say. At
1: 238, Patrick Ireland, who had been shot in the library and was unconscious an entire time, was spotted attempting to climb out the window. God, that's crazy, man. Shot, climbing out. He was not giving up, not giving up at all. He had been shot three times, and two of the bullets were in his head. And he was paralyzed on one side of his body after being hit. And luckily, I think there's even some footage of this but SWAT team members were able to get their armored vehicle along the side of the school and were able to help pull him through the library's broken windows so that he could be rushed to the hospital. He saved himself that day. And so many others saved themselves that day. The police did not save anybody. Right. Save anybody to say everybody saved themselves. The ones that survived saved themselves. That's what's so crazy about this. Police were not there for them. And in a video of a news broadcast that afternoon just before 3 p.m., reporters can be heard talking about how patrol cars took turns driving four to five students at a time to safe sites. At 3.22 p.m., the first SWAT team entered the library more than three hours after the shootings and murders had occurred in the library and the gunmen had killed themselves. And I can't even imagine walking into that scene in the library. When they got into the library, they came across 12 bodies, 10 deceased victims, and the two shooters. Lisa, who had been unable to move due to her injuries, had managed to stay alive and was finally rescued. The rest of the survivors hiding in various spots in the library were also evacuated. The SWAT team then continued to check the rest of the building and then completed their first sweep at 4.45 p.m. By that time, the murder victims had all been officially determined to be deceased. And later that evening, as the bomb squad was neutralizing the site, bombs were found in both Eric and Dylan's cars, the booby traps. And they had failed to go off earlier during the day as the gunman had intended, which would have killed and injured not only fleeing students, but emergency personnel and anyone else operating at the scene. They were able to safely remove the bombs from the scene. Victims advocates worked with people who still had missing children or family members from the school throughout the night. And because the site still could be very dangerous, because of unknown explosives that could still be hidden, investigators, including the coroner, could not enter the building until Wednesday morning, the 21st, in order to identify and remove the deceased. But on Wednesday, all of the bodies were removed, and autopsies were completed by Thursday afternoon. All told, 13 people, 12 students, and one teacher had been killed by Eric Harris and Dylan Klebold. Over 20 had been injured, and there were 30 exploded devices identified at the school and 46 unexploded devices found. It's very clear that Eric and Dylan were planning to literally bomb the entire school and burn it to the ground and take as many people with them. I mean, just the sheer fact that they had that many explosives is... Truly mind blowing. I can't even, that's just crazy. And just, they were clearly angry at the school and they wanted to destroy the school and everybody in it. And it's very clear that they didn't target any particular group or any particular person for any particular reason. It was all very random. And because the ultimate goal was to bring everybody down along with the school. Before we continue talking about the aftermath of the Columbine Massacre, and especially before we talk about the motivations of the killers, I just wanted to take a moment and pay my respects and our respects to the innocent victims of this horrific day. At the end of this tragic event, the 13 individuals that died were Cassie Bernal, was 17 years old, Stephen Kernow, who was 14 years old, Corey DePuter, who was 17 years old, Kelly Fleming, who was 16 years old, Matthew Kector, who was 16 years old, Daniel Mauser, who was 15, Daniel Rorbo who was 15, William Dave Sanders, who was 47, Rachel Scott, who was 17, Isaiah Scholes, who was 18, John Tomlin, who was 16, Lauren Townsend, who was 18, and Kyle Velasquez, who was 16. Just wanted to give a moment of silence for them because these poor kids and this poor teacher did not deserve any of this I just want to make it clear that when I cover these dark events that I am by no means intending to give the gunmen or the shooters or the perpetrators any sort of fame or awareness or attempt to try to carry on their legacy by any means I purely do this for the victims so that they are never forgotten and that this event is never forgotten because this is an event that changed history and will always be remembered. But moving forward, let's talk a little bit about the motivations for this massacre and the warning signs. During the day of the massacre, law enforcement had gone to Eric's home once he had been identified as a shooter where they found and neutralized explosives and gathered evidence. Since then investigators and journals have used the materials taken from Eric and also the Dylan household, as well as interviews with fellow students who knew the two to try and find a reason behind the killings, as well as possible signs of the boys intentions leading up to the massacre. Among these articles were journals written by both boys and videos, which came to be known as the Basement Tapes. Only a few researchers and investigators have seen the tapes, which the Jefferson County Police Department kept under close wraps and eventually proved to be deleted in 2011. They viewed the erasure of the tapes to be a preventive measure so that they could not become manuals for copycats or fuel potentially dangerous obsessions with the killers. The destruction of evidence distressed many people Including researchers who believed it could help gain insight on the mentalities of school shooters and other perpetrators of such violence. The information gleaned from the boys' writings, which are often referenced, and the moments of home videos that have been reported on demonstrate that they exhibited grandiose notions of being godlike and above others. Eric exhibited particularly strong sentiments of superiority and hatred towards the world. At times, he expressed explicitly racist hatred, and other times it was directed very broadly. In one journal entry, he wrote, Hate, I am full of hate, and I love it. The boys have been thought to have been obsessed with Nazism, especially Eric. People say they drew swastikas, and Eric even wrote an essay about the Nazi regime. While the essay was not condoning it, he did strangely note that they had a strong family values. This was further emphasized when people noted that the day of the attack, April 20th, was also Hitler's day of birth. Eric also repeatedly spoke of wanting to further natural selection. Demonstrating that he viewed others to be inept and unworthy, Dylan's writing, on the other hand, exhibited signs of depression, self-loathing, and suicidal thoughts. And while both boys had issues with anger, Dylan was especially known for outbursts, even at times swearing at his teachers. Eric's private AOL website has drawn extensive attention as it housed a blog in which Eric voiced many angry and violent intentions, as well as indications that he had been building bombs. Online, Eric and Dylan used the nicknames Reb and Vodka, sometimes referred to just as V. Although the site had gone relatively unnoticed for a while, Eric at one point made a death threat against classmate Brooks Brown on his website that caused the Brown family to bring it to the Jefferson County Police's attention during one of several reports they filed against Eric regarding ongoing harassment. Because of the reference to bomb making on the website, police drafted an affidavit in order to obtain a search warrant but did not pursue it by taking it to the courts after deciding their case was not strong enough without a direct witness. The site was later taken down, although it is unclear if Eric took it down or the host provider did it. And despite the conflict with the Brown family, Brooks and Eric had reportedly resolved their issues, which may be why Eric let him leave the school grounds before he began his attack. Evidence of the existence of the unpursued affidavit would not go public until 2001. This would later be seen as a major missed opportunity for preventative intervention, which obviously caused many to critique the way in which law enforcement handled the Browns reports. Because, come on, look at his website. They drew up an affidavit for a search warrant, but they did not pursue it. Why? Because they didn't have a direct witness. They could have thwarted this entire attack if they had just executed this search warrant, because what would they have found? Probably some guns, probably some bombs, probably some materials. They could have foiled this entire attack had they carried out this search warrant, but They decided it wasn't important enough because they didn't have proof.
2: Yeah, it was like they didn't take it seriously whatsoever, although there were many red flags. And it kind of goes back to that, what we are saying earlier, how no one would ever expect something like this to happen. Still,
1: to me, from my point of view, law enforcement is there not only to enforce the laws, but they're there to prevent crime from happening. And when they do not take threats seriously and they do not take reports seriously, they are literally not doing their job. And look what happened. A massacre of children occurred because they did not take a report seriously which had sufficient evidence. I mean, their website, Eric's website was horrific. Literally talking about killing all these different people, bomb making. I mean, what more proof do you need to just do a search warrant? That's all that needed to happen was just search the guy's house, search his belongings, search his computer, and they would have probably found everything. And instead, they decided it wasn't important enough earlier that year in 1998 Dylan and Eric were actually arrested for breaking into a van and stealing electrical equipment and they they I believe they got felony charges for this and the only thing they got was a slap on the wrist a diversion course mandatory diversion course meant to keep juveniles from committing future crimes and if this is not A show of white privilege i do not know what is because you got to be telling me that if this had been two black individuals that they would have ended up in jail yet eric and dylan slap on the wrist go to a class imagine if they had put these guys away even sent them to you know juvenile detention for for a while maybe it would have changed things just shows another failing of the criminal justice system. But many have come to believe that part of the killer's motivation came out of a desire for revenge for their arrest, which I don't know to me, maybe a little bit. I think they, they were far angrier about things. I think it was more directed at the school. They felt like they were bullied at one point and you know, they didn't have a good experience there whatsoever. They hated everybody there, and I think it's just this hatred that they both shared, and they both fueled each other and really built each other up to the point where they felt like they could carry out this attack. What's interesting, though, is that a result of the diversion course was that Eric was put into an anger management course and prescribed the antidepressant Zoloft, which many have noted is often given to treat obsessive-compulsive disorder. Also, after he complained about the drug's negative effects on his mental health and concentration, he was given a different brand, Luvox, and apparently therapeutic amounts were found in his system at his autopsy, and some have speculated that the harmful side effects of antidepressant medication could have contributed to Eric's violent and homicidal mentality. I think that's an excuse. Could it have amplified the already violent and homicidal mentality? Absolutely. Absolutely but you definitely cannot blame it on a medication because I mean, it's impossible to even say how that would affect his mental health. But apparently Eric was regularly seeing a counselor until shortly before the shooting occurred. And he passed the course of flying colors due to his ability to present a false front to others in order to tell them what they wanted to hear. He expressed what seemed like sincere remorse for his crime. Although he showed that he did not view his actions as wrong in personal writings that he thought he should be able to steal what another person left in plain sight in their car unattended, and that his only mistake was in getting caught. Many people have been critical of the parent's failure to intervene and have asked if they knew of their child's violent tendencies. This has caused people to scrutinize their home lives to find answers. But both Eric and Dylan came from stable, middle-class households. Dylan Klebold had been born on September 11, 1981 in Lakewood, Colorado, And seemed to have a normal upbringing. Eric was born on April 9th, 1981, and grew up in an Army household. His dad was in the Air Force, and so that caused him to move a lot while growing up, and he had a hard time maintaining friendships as a child. After he moved to Colorado, him and Dylan became friends while in middle school. Dylan's parents claimed to not have known of any suspicious or telling behavior leading up to the attack. His mom even speaks about it today. There's actually a TED talk with, I think, 8 million views about how, you know, she really didn't know. Dylan did not seem like a person who would do this, and they never really had any signs that Dylan was capable of carrying out these evil acts. And obviously, as a result of all this, Sue Klebold said she spent years trying to figure out what she had missed or overlooked before the massacre and has since become a mental health advocate. She said
2: that he was less likely to seek help from others when it came to his own problems and that he would often share his anger and sense of alienation with the world with Eric because Eric was his closest friend and had been for a very long time, and, and he truly felt like he could just connect with
1: him. Which I totally get, and I, I, I understand that it's hard to move around Like from Eric's perspective. I understand it's hard to make friends at new schools. And I I don't know, I don't think I've ever shared this, but I, I went to like 13 different schools growing up and I was not even in a military family. So yeah, you
2: know, we, we both did, man. Yeah. I was going to, yeah. You too. Schools. We've sure. both
1: been in this situation of, you know, going to a new school and not knowing anybody there and feeling alienated and like an outsider and, you know, going through all those feelings and, I mean, I, I, I won't lie, I went through feelings of anger and rage at times, like just so angry with my situation and, you know, the situation my parents had put us in. And so I, I understand it from that perspective, but I think that was just sort of the foundation for these, you know, violent tendencies. And I, I think that it was really when the two came together and they realized that they both shared this anger. And hatred. And obviously, you know, there's some bullying there, and they don't really have any other friends besides each other that I guess they would sort of, you know, only confide in each other and, you know, sort of pump each other up. Like I said earlier, like they just continue to pump each other up. And, you know, the fact that they were into the same things and all of it was violent and, you know, getting into Nazism and all of that, I think it's just a culmination of different things which led them to the point of where ultimately they're both suicidal. They ultimately both took their own lives. So uh, clearly they were on the same page with that. So I I think it's kind of like this perfect storm of just all these things that really played into how this all went down. But personally, I believe the parents do carry some of the blame here because you know, you could be a good parent. You can say you're a good family, but if you don't have a good read on your kid and you don't really know what's going on with them, or they're just lying straight to your face every day, you're doing something wrong because as a parent, in my opinion, you should be able to talk to your child and have open and honest conversation. And your children should feel comfortable enough to come to you with anything and with any sort of feelings and not hide that from you. And from what I gather about Dylan's family is that they were kind of this more free spirited, pacifist, Approach to parenting where they kind of were hands off and kind of just let Dylan figure things out. And Dylan was able to manipulate them and realize that, you know, he could create this illusion that he's this good kid and, you know, nice around your parents. But then when your parents aren't looking, you're, you could be doing the most evil shit and they would never know. And then to me, it really seems like that was the case with Dylan, especially, but then with Eric, you know, with the military family and stuff, You know, he made sure that he stayed up to those standards with his dad and got good grades and all of that. But behind the scenes, both of them are two faced and both of them are totally living this double life where they're these fucking supervillains and they're fucked up crazy, you know, fantasy world that they're living in that unfortunately became a reality. But I don't know. I think it's really hard. And I think obviously there's probably some mental illness there. And it's, I don't know, it's not normal whatsoever to be making bombs or, you know, conducting fake, you know, mock scenarios of shooting students and carrying out these evil acts. Obviously, there's major issues there. But the fact that the parents did not have a read or an understanding of what their children were doing, because, I mean, they're still. As long as they're living in your house, it's your responsibility as a parent to make sure you know what they're doing at all times. Obviously, you can't know everything, but there are so many times they're out in the middle of the woods just shooting off guns. And, you know, come on, you don't ever go into your child's bedroom or go where they might be hiding guns and see. You know you know your kids into war, you know they're into guns and all this, like you're not gonna see if they have any. I don't know, I think there's definitely some responsibility on the parents. There's some negligence there, and I'm sure all of them feel extremely guilty for what happened and I think sometimes parents you know don't really know what to do when their kids are going through you know issues at school, mental health issues and like Eric, he was seeing a counselor, he was taking medication, so I think his parents really thought that his behavioral issues were being addressed but what's crazy though is that on the day of the massacre Wayne Harris feared that his son was a possible perpetrator and he actually called 911 to share his suspicions so in the 911 call Wayne Harris mentions a theory which was widely proliferated in subsequent speculation about the shooters after the attack that Eric and Dylan were members of the trench coat mafia which is a group of quote Outsiders who dressed in trench coats and made space in social peripheries people quickly associated the trench coat mafia with swastikas and nationalistic views which became part of the media discussion of the shooters motivations while there was a trench coat mafia group at Columbine High School it was later determined that neither Eric nor Dylan were members despite wearing trench coats on the day of the attack
2: so they did have friends who were a part of the trench coat mafia group but Eric and Dylan did not belong to it themselves. An investigator later pointed out that Eric and Dylan wore those trench coats for functional reasons during the massacre as they could hide the weapons and the
1: bombs in them. I mean, that's believable for sure because, I mean, a trench coat head-to-toe pretty much. Like, you can definitely hide a lot of stuff in there. So, yeah, they could have did it for functional reasons. But I think a lot of the confusion came up From the fact that in a video project for a class that they had, Dylan and Eric had acted, acted as trench coat mafia hitmen and made profanity laden threats all based upon a short story written by Eric. Also connected to this trench coat mafia theory was the idea that Eric and Dylan inflicted the immense violence because of bullying and the fact that they felt like outsiders. And this is sometimes linked to the reports that they called out jocks while carrying out the massacre but obviously there's conflicting views on this point as there are reports of bullying, but with conflicting accounts of the severity or frequency of the bullying, the boys experience. Some students even said they did not witness any bullying of the boys at all. I have a hard time believing they were bullied. I, I have re- a hard Yeah, I, I do really as well. do because neither of them seem like guys that would put up with being bullied in the first place. I mean, if they were bullied, wouldn't they have been getting in fights all the time or wouldn't they have already done something to somebody by now? If they're this violent inside and outside of school, they're shooting guns off. They would have already done something to somebody. I feel like if they had been in fact bullied. So I, to me personally, I I really don't think bullying played a huge part in this. I mean, obviously I think they probably got made fun of or got shit from people because of how they look dressed or whatever. But do I think they were like, heavily bullied on a daily basis? Not really. What's interesting is
2: Brooks Brown, who was a friend of Eric and Dylan at the time, later said in an interview that they were the bottom two kids in the entire school, not just out of their senior class, but the entire school, they were the two uncoolest kids. So they were basically the losers of the losers,
1: is how Brooks put it. But let's remember Brooks was one of them. He was literally one of them. I think he even wore a trench coat with them like a year before. Yeah, good point. So it's like I think Brooks is just kind of trying to make sure he keeps himself as far away from them. You gotta you gotta think that he's looking out for yourself. And to me, I'm just like, if anything, they isolated themselves and you know, because of what they are into and Maybe they and because of their views. I mean, they hated everybody. They believed that everybody was inferior to them. That they were almost godlike. And I mean, their beliefs were fucking out there. So this whole idea and notion that they were bullied, I think, just helps play into the the idea that they're you know somehow victims in this. And that's just complete bullshit. I don't believe that at all. I don't think Eric and Dylan are victims at all. Period. I think they are a hundred percent perpetrators here. And that this was all out of their doing. That this wasn't retaliation for something that happened to them. This was just purely out of their belief and revenge on the school and the fact that yeah they probably were outsiders. I mean, who the fuck wears trench coats around? Like that—that's so fucking out there. Like and and honestly, it's, most schools don't allow it for the very reason that you can fucking hide shit in your trench coat. Right. I mean, you can bring a weapon in that easily. It's like a well-known fact that. You know, that's a way to hide things. So I don't buy it. I really don't buy that they were, you know, bullied or anything like that. I mean, even the principal of the high school said that these kids were not bullied. They never once mentioned bullying. We need to change that story that's out there and quit glorifying them. Absolutely. I agree with that. People that have analyzed the events of the Columbine massacre have pointed out that Dylan and Eric were, for the most part, random in who they decided to shoot. And who they did not, indicating that the actual murders they inflicted were not specific, right? Because if they were bullied and they really had like this kill list, why didn't they hunt down all those people and kill those individual people? Why they just, if they just killed everybody at, you know, what, when the opportunity presented itself, that's who their victims were. If they were really bullied, you'd think they'd go kill, you know, all the jocks or whatever, you know, if those were the guys that were you know, bullying them on a daily basis or making fun of them. Why don't they go shoot all them? But it was like a bunch of girls, first of all. So what's that about? I mean, it just doesn't make sense. This whole idea, I think is just a way to try and make them be a victim in this in some way, shape or form. But I don't think they deserve that at all.
2: Right. That's a great point. Like they had a hit list that they even posted on the internet and you know, why didn't they just go after those specific people And instead they went after everyone in the entire school and even later planned like blowing up gas stations and other places outside of the school. So it just shows like they had a pure hatred for, you know, people in general.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think their ideas were much larger than that. And clearly, like I mentioned at the beginning of this, they looked up to people that were shared similar beliefs. Isn't that Hitler, you know, Timothy McVeigh from Oklahoma city bombing, all these people that are kind of like fuck the world and you know, and we're the superior race. We're the superior people here. Everybody else is dumb. I think it was really that. And you know, other people like to blame video games. The fact that Eric was obsessed with doom, which just everybody loves to jump on video games and say video games are the problem. But yet millions and millions of people are able to play violent ass video games and never hurt a person. So to me, that's just a weak answer because if you're, if a a video game is influencing you to the point where you need to go out and physically commit these acts or this violence in the real world, then there's something, there's a larger issue at play there, right? Right. Because if the 99.9% of people can go out and play Call of Duty every day and never once shoot a person, then clearly there's not a problem. But if you are that person that goes out and tries to enact Call of Duty in real life, then there's probably something bigger going on inside your brain. You know, there's probably some type of disorder or something else that is influencing that decision. You know, or you're just that one-off person that decides that that's a good idea. But I, I don't understand why people always try to come up with excuses for these people for the things that they do and the acts they commit because. It's just giving them an escape. It's just giving them, you know, it's lessening their evil legacy. It's lessening, you know, where they should be in history and they should remain at the bottom. They should not be brought up to where these victims are because these victims don't deserve that. They don't. And the families don't deserve that. So stop. Right. Just anybody that's going to try to argue that like it doesn't work. It just doesn't work. I think to me, based on Eric's journal entries and everything we gathered is the biggest motivation for them was that they wanted to leave a legacy of devastation and that no one and nothing else should be blamed besides the shooters themselves, not the families, not the school, not violent video games, which makes a lot of sense to me. It's clear that all this extreme anger, they wanted to be known. They wanted to be known in history they specifically carried this out because they knew that if they pull off this elaborate plan, which they got half of their plan, you know, the, this could have been way worse than it was. And thank God it did not go the way that they wanted it to go, but they were hoping they wanted to go down and be like this, these martyrs for whatever crazy beliefs they were, they had and and be remembered in history as you know, the Columbine shooters and, you know go down in history like all these other evil people like hitler and you know all these other people that commit these heinous acts throughout you know the course of civilization and that that's what they did it for and and that's what i believe is that they wanted to be remembered as these evil evil people that fucking did this horrific massacre and that's that's it and they just got themselves to that point where that was the most important thing to them in their life. They didn't care about anything else.
2: Right. And it makes me think that they were trying to be like Timothy McVeigh in the Oklahoma City bombing. And Mm -hmm. like you said, thank God those bombs did not go off uh, because the destruction from that would have been way more worse than what actually happened. But they did have an opportunity when those bombs did not go off in the cafeteria to say, you know what? We're not going to do this. They could have just picked up those duffel bags, brought took them back to the car and said, no, we're done. But they continued to go in there with those firearms and just shoot up the whole place when they didn't have to do that the whole time.
1: Right. They were going to go down no matter what. That was, they knew it. They knew they were going to kill themselves that day. They were going to go down and take as many people with them. That was their plan. And thank God it, didn't go completely in their favor because it could have been way, way worse. I mean, again, so many people were affected this over the entire periods of their lives and 13 innocent individuals lost their lives. So I'm not trying to minimize that at all because that is still way too many people, innocent people that lost their lives. But moving on, two men, Mark Maines and Philip Duran, were later prosecuted and sent to prison for acquiring firearms for Eric and Dylan in the months before the massacre, because obviously they were underage. So how the hell they get firearms. Someone got them for him. Philip Duran knew Dylan and Eric from working with them at blackjack pizza and then introduced them to Mark mains. A third individual who bought guns for them. Robin Anderson was not charged in exchange for her help with the investigations following the event. All three denied having any knowledge of what Eric and Dylan had been intending with those weapons. I have a hard time believing that too. I do too. I really do. Cuz first of all, sawed-off shotguns I believe are illegal to own. Yes, they are. And you cannot have a sawed-off shotgun, so they're helping them ob- obtain illegal weapons first of all. And two, really? Like one of the weapons they had is not yeah it's a hard weapon to get a hold of uh it's rare to come by and so the fact that they had the weapons that they did to me makes me believe that they probably had some inkling of what they were going to do what they just say target practice really just get them a fucking norm like a 22 yeah, regular right. hunting rifle or anything like that but the fact that they got them literal you know guns built to kill people I don't know. I question that a lot. But the biggest issue that came out of Columbine was the hesitation of law enforcement to go into the school and eliminate the threat far earlier. And so in a report issued by governor Bill Owens in May, 2001 and built around findings from the Columbine review commission, one of the main recommendations was that law enforcement policy and training should emphasize that the highest priority of law enforcement officers after arriving at the scene of a crisis is to stop any ongoing assault. All law enforcement officers who may be first responders at a crisis and all school resource officers should be trained in concepts and skills of rapid emergency deployment, whether or not assigned as members of standing or reserve special weapons and tactics teams or SWAT teams, which to me should have been in place in the first place. It makes absolute what's the point of having a school resource officer At the school at all times, if they are not going to go seek out an active shooter in a school, especially if it's a student shooting, makes no sense whatsoever to me. And I can't believe how law enforcement
2: were just standing out in the parking lot while they were hearing gunshots and bombs going off inside the school, seeing kids running out in complete panic, like bleeding and all sorts of crazy stuff. I mean...
1: I I just, it just doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, It doesn't make sense to me either. Cause I mean, clearly the likeliness was that it was students that were shooting in there. And you're telling me that as a law enforcement officer with a lot more experience training, probably far more accurate with a weapon that your first instinct is not to charge in there and take out the shooters that are literally slaughtering children inside. I, I can't even, I can't even imagine like, the amount of guilt some of those guys must have must be just off the charts because literally, especially that fucking school resource officer that stood outside, he should have fucking worked his way to them and he could he could have easily snuck up behind them. He could have taken them out if he had try, even tried. He probably could have at least injured, wounded them, slowed down the attack, Focus their fire on him for at least a few more minutes so that more kids could get out. The fact that he did not do everything he could have done in order to save lives that day, to me, just, what are you doing? What If you're going into law enforcement, that is literally your job. You take an oath when you become a police officer that you are going to protect and serve and put the people in the community, especially children, before yourself. You let—that's why you wear a bulletproof vest. That's why you carry a gun. Is so that you can respond to somebody actively shooting. That's the only reason you carry that. What's the point? What's the point in standing outside shooting at the building? That makes no sense to me. It really doesn't. And then when the SWAT team gets there, you're telling me a bunch of SWAT guys who are probably military trained couldn't have immediately gone in there and just slowly started working their way to the library when they knew they were up in the library. It just makes no sense to me. And in my opinion, law enforcement completely failed, completely failed all the kids of the school and potentially most, if not all of these guys may have been saved. If law enforcement had reacted even a little bit faster,
2: I, I completely agree. I don't know if it was fear or selfishness for that school corrections officer or the law enforcement that were standing out in the parking lot to not take immediate action on the situation. I mean, look at Dave Sanders, that teacher who is up in there unarmed and protecting as many students as he can, putting his life on the line. And that's just what's super frustrating with law enforcement is if they did get, there, get in there right away and did what Dave Sanders did,
1: they probably would have saved so many lives. 100%. Because if you look even at clips of the two, of Eric and Dylan, this might be a completely different story if law enforcement had engaged them in some way. And don't tell me that there wasn't some type of less lethal, you know, if you're worried about shooting students, there's other ways to attack tear gas. I mean, any other fucking stun grenades. I mean, there's so many different tools that they they had or should have had in order to at least divert the shooter's attentions to them so that they had to respond to that as opposed to just... F- walking freely through the school just shooting at will no threats nobody trying to take them down no fear the entire time they were not met with any sort of force at all it just it blows my mind because to me i mean if you're in law enforcement and you're not going to run towards danger you're not going to try to save somebody's life then what the hell are you doing why are you a police officer why why so you can write speeding tickets drive a little car with lights on it we we will come on yeah so true what's the real fucking purpose of this it's to save lives in these types of situations and when cops do not step up to the occasion there's a major problem you know and if you're scared then you should not be a cop you cannot be, especially in this situation, if it's kids, you hear kids screaming. I, I know for me that I would be fucking, I would be running in there because you know what? If if that's what I signed up to do, I'm going to fucking do that because people are relying. And this is what 99% of the survivors' families feel too. It's not just me saying this. This is like the general consensus out there is that law enforcement failed. The children and students and teachers of Columbine high school on April 20th, 1999, 100%. And even today with all the school shootings we've had since then, they continue to fail and continue to not do what is required to save lives. But after all this was over, an earlier memorial carried some controversy with it. When crosses were erected in the nearby Clement Park in memory of the deceased victims, And there were 15, including two for Eric and Dylan. What the fuck? Who thought that was a good idea? The two crosses were taken down because families obviously felt like this glorified the perpetrators. Duh. Yeah, I would feel the
2: same way. hell.
1: The old school library was taken down and replaced with a new library in 1995 to obviously get rid of the scene that had happened there. And it was renamed to the Hope Library. In September of 2007, a permanent memorial was dedicated in Clement Park, an oval structure with red stone with an outer wall called the Ring of Healing, and a smaller interior circle called the Ring of Remembrance. The inner wall has messages from the 13 victims' families. What's cool is that Patrick Ireland, one of the victims of the massacre, went on to be valedictorian of the class of 2000. And many of the survivors have gone on to help others who have experienced trauma or to advocate for policy to help Prevent events like this. For example, Missy Mendo and Heather Martin, both students at Columbine at the time of the attack, help run the Rebels Project, a nonprofit organization that Martin co-founded after the 2012 Aurora theater shooting. The organization supports victims of mass trauma. Tom Mauser, father of Daniel Mauser, was killed during the massacre. Has fought for gun control measures, including Amendment 22, which Colorado passed in 2000 which prohibits the purchase of guns from private sellers without background checks. He has also been vocal in advocating for the Red Flag Law, which allows judges to take guns from people who the judge deems to be at high risk of inflicting harm on themselves or others. The parents of Rachel Scott, the first victim, started the nonprofit Rachel's Challenge, which seeks to prevent violence, bullying, and suicide through presentations and programming, offered both at schools and places of work. An annual Columbine Day of Service is also recognized on April 20th when individuals serve their community through positive actions. In 2019, Jason Glass, the superintendent of Jefferson County Public Schools proposed that Columbine High School be torn down and rebuilt nearby the existing site, but not directly on it. They named the mascot would remain the same. and The hope library would be preserved. He argued that it would keep away the hundreds of people who seek to go to the school out of curiosity or fascination with the Columbine massacre including a group of obsessed individuals from around the world who refer to themselves as Columbiners. Which a few years back, I don't I don't remember the exact date, there was a woman named Soul Pie who was gonna go shoot up Columbine. And the problem is that this unfortunately did inspire a lot of shooters and potential school shooters to basically copy what eric and dylan did so i totally am for tearing down the school and starting fresh i'm surprised that they did not do that after this because after such a horrific event i can't even imagine being a student going back into that school i know right i don't get it like why it only makes sense to give everybody a fresh start how can you expect people to work there and go to school where this horrific tragedy happened i wouldn't want to go to school there after that can you imagine how how scary that would be and just how you'd have those thoughts there of people you know of what had happened there if everything is exactly the same except for the library got changed the hell there were still people killed all over the place there outside in the school it wasn't just the library so and that, and that way we can kill this whole kind of dark legacy that it carries and kill this fucking crazy group that's online that still glorifies that day and, and Eric and Dylan. But with all that being said, we'll go ahead and wrap up today's episode there. Definitely let us know what you guys think about all of this. I know it was a lot and we just barely scratched the surface on most of this. But hopefully, if you didn't know that much about Columbine and the horrific tragedy that was April 20th, 1999, that hopefully now you understand it a little bit more. And as always, we want to remember the victims of that day. Above everything else, they deserve to be remembered. But thanks again for listening to this episode of the Lights Out Podcast. If you enjoyed it, definitely subscribe on youtube spotify itunes we really appreciate it but until next time lights out everybody